0: Welcome back to The Cypher, a series of conversations with creators and thinkers from the Black Diaspora who are leaning into their roots to create new spaces for all of us. I'm your host, Krista berlin On today's show, we're unpacking the term Black Girl No Magic. Now don't get me wrong, I love the term, we are magic. You know, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, Beyonce, the... Probably you're one of your friends or all of your friends. The list is long. Black girls are magic. We're powerful, ambitious. We have leadership qualities. But the thing is, it often feels like we don't really have an option to fail or to stumble. Just ask all of the women that I referred to earlier at the top of the show. My guest, Kimberly McIntosh, asks an important question in her new book called Black Girl, No Magic, which comes out in June 2023. And the question is this, is there a space outside of the idea of black excellence or power for women and girls to make mistakes, be vulnerable and be flawed and still be loved or even liked? Kimberly isn't just a writer, she's very involved in community advocacy. She's a public policy researcher and she's a counsellor for the London Borough of Southwark. I'll ask her to explain what that is for our global audiences when we get into the conversation. I can tell you that it's an elected role that means that she represents the people in her community. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this.
1: Kimberly McIntosh, welcome to The Cypher. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. I'm actually in Spain at the moment, so I'm feeling very good. I bet you are what <laughs> I was expecting you to say London, but no you're you're
0: in Europe um having a wonderful time, I hope I'm sure it's very, very well earned now, I said at the top of the show that you're a, a Southwark councillor, and I also mentioned that that it means that you represent the people it's an elected um position,
1: correct. Yes. So it's an elected position and Southwark is a borough in South London and we have elections every four years where people vote to ha- bring people in, to represent them, to make local decisions. So things like parks. I don't know if anyone's seen Parks and Recreation. kind yes. of think <laughs> that vibe, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. kind of work that we're doing. I love that. No, we have the equivalent over here in the United
0: States as well, but I just wanted to make sure that we were clear on that. Um but but let's dive into this book of yours, Black Girl No Magic. Now, just for the reader, it, the book is a mixture of essays and interviews and recollections from your past. Now, the cipher we get into it on the personal tip when when you know on the show, and you said recollections from your past. Um, let's start with this: Why the title Black Girl No Magic?
1: Well, it's definitely in line with your introduction and what you were saying about the limited stories that we have about black people, but particularly black women. And if we think about phrases like black girl magic or black excellence, they can be really empowering. And the reason that we've come up with these phrases and we've gone to them is because we're living in societies both in the UK but also in the US where we're not seeing ourselves celebrated. We have narratives that are often outside of our control. And so we're trying to take back control of those narratives. But what I see and what I believe a lot of other people see as well is the limits of the pressure that those narratives can put on us because we can't be brilliant all the time. We're not magical all the time. And also neither of those things are going to end the role of racism in our lives. And so I think it's important to create a space for us to be flawed and vulnerable and ordinary and to also bring the attention back to the structures in our societies that make it difficult to excel
0: it's so funny it's not funny haha but it's funny you say that because as I'm listening to you unpack what it is that you want to address right it it really brings home the fact that like you say these conversations are often so top level right it's like we should be allowed to be vulnerable. We should be allowed to be this, right? But when you when you go deeper than the skin, so to speak, right in the heart, what I feel is is um, I guess I can only I'm going to give you an example. One of my earliest memories is my dad sitting me down and giving me the talk. Not the talk, not the police talk, but the talk where he basically says, "You're a black girl with an African name." and you've got to work twice as hard as these people in order just to in order just to be seen as their equal but i want you to excel because i know you're brilliant he didn't want to i just remember his face he was quite tired because it was a young dude at the time he didn't want to give his kid that speech but he did and the reason why i bring that up is because what i also remember is drawing a square it was a quadrant right and after his conversation, it's so funny because I'm like a very visual kid and, and clearly i very highly analytical. Even then I drew f- four boxes and I understood that white men were at the top. So if white was at the top. Yeah. And like left to right was best. White men were at the top and black girls, as I would have said, or women were on the bottom right quadrant. So in other words, the bottom of the heap. And I didn't quite um, understand the emotionality of that. But decades later, as I'm listening to you, and I've thought about it over the years, it the conversation really, it gets, it's much deeper than that for us, isn't it? Because you see all these things coming out right now about black women being tired because we are tired. <laughs> we can't be brilliant <laughs> all the time. Look at what happened with Simone Biles. You know, she said, I need to step out. And people are like, what the hell? You've got to win us mm. some gold medals. You know, Naomi Osaka said, I, I can't, I need, I need a pause. And people said, you have to win. You have to entertain mm. us. And so I sense that
1: that's what the book is getting at, right? Definitely. There are so many things that you said that I want to pick up on. So mm-hmm. the first one is the talk. Um, not the police talk, the other talk, uh-huh. which is a classic. It's like the clarion call of immigrant parents all over the world. Most people have had it. And what I find interesting about what you were saying is that even though you're so young, you still understand the parameters of what you're being told to be true. And yet yeah, you can analyze it pretty well, despite the fact that you're actually quite young. And it, it just shows how pervasive that reality is that you know, even at the age of, say, you know, eight or nine, you know, I'm guessing when you had it. But I was five, was really, really, five years yeah. old. <laughs> <laughs> it was near, near
0: close to the first day of school, yeah.
1: But it's, and you know, it's coming from a good place, right? Because we can't pretend the societies we live in aren't what they are. And so parents are just trying to prepare you for the reality of that so that you can navigate it. Like, in my book, actually, I talk briefly about having that very same conversation, my mum having it with me and um, kind of hating her, to be honest, Mm. because I knew just in the moment, because I knew it was true. And I didn't want to be told that, that you don't have the same scope to misbehave in class, or you don't have the same resources to be able to, you know, when you finish school and decide what you want to do with your life for people to be able to give you money to start a business or, in the workplace it's not going to be fair for you and so you need to be ready for that being annoyed at being told that but also knowing that it was 100 percent true mm. and it, yeah what you were saying just made me think about that um but also that that conversation has to continue because a lot of those realities haven't changed nope. and so we do have to be prepared not only prepared ourselves but then preparing the next generation of children too that I don't know if you've had that conversation with your own children. Um, You haven't. No, no. I mean, not as explicitly,
0: but I would say to you that there have been moments where I have been uh, triggered, say, and Mm. because I I walk that line of um, wanting them to just be kids, right? But at the same time, mm. preparing them for that reality, which is what all parents want, I think, all, all, all parents who are immigrants or or have been othered in some way, they want that. So mm. I'm very honest with my kids about a lot of things. Um, but also, my kids have privilege in in ways that I didn't. So there's there's some ways in which I can I can. know um, I'm talking about economic privilege as well, right? And mm. you know, they have they have parents that have you know, jobs that are either public facing or or come with a, a degree of power, which my parents did not because they were immigrants from Ghana. And, you know, they were like, we have skills and talents that this society does not value. You were born in this country. We do not want the same thing for you. And I think every time I had a challenge, my dad actually, one time he said, I can't believe this is still happening and it's happening to you. And I was like, what do you mean? Because you just get on with your life, right? And you forget that these things are happening, but they're watching all the time so to answer your question have I had the chat yes but not as explicitly as that if that Mm. makes sense which which is a challenge for me because I think that's the line that we all try to walk and again I think that's what your book is maybe
1: helping us address there's two points I'd want to make on that so one is that one of the things that I want to make really clear in the book is that people do have different experiences and often when we talk about the black experience it doesn't necessarily (laughs) exactly we've all we're all having different experiences and like your economic position what your parents do for a living the kind of school you go to has a massive impact on the type of black experience you will have Mm -hmm. and one of the consequences of not having as many opportunities to tell our stories is that only some of them get told and then people don't see themselves in those narratives and it kind of oversimplifies what people are going through because you know some black people are actually very wealthy and so the experience they're having is going to be very different to someone on the low income who's maybe living in my constituency where um I'm a local councillor right so it's people are having very different lives and that's all okay that's legitimate but we need to be better at kind of teasing out that that has a different impact on different people, yeah. um, because of it.
0: How um, good do you think people in the UK are at um, making that differential? Um, you know, like you t- you're ultimately you're talking about nuance, right? You're talking about nuanced experiences, mm. and we're all different, right? And often I find that the conversation in the UK gets stymied by, but we're not like America. And no, we understand and we're not as racist as Americans. And my argument to that is always well, it's, it's different. <laughs> it's different. Mm. It's not necessarily worse. It just feels different. So your book is coming out in the UK context. Number one is using a hashtag that came out of America Right. It started mm. off as Black Girls Are Magic, like twenty in twenty thirteen. I believe um it was a Washington DC native Kashawn Thompson created the hashtag. I know there are other people who make claims on that. Um and but it turned into black girls are magic. And it was this celebration of black girlness, but it's very much an American term. So how do you think people will react um and respond to this idea of you taking this American thing concept? and being very bold in the celebration of black girls um, within the UK context?
1: Mm, It's a good question. So there are lots of similarities between the UK and the US, but lots of differences as well. Yeah. To anyone who says that, you know, we don't have a racism problem in the UK or it's much worse in the US, I would tell them to look at the statistics because they don't lie and Mm -hmm. it's not looking great. You're more likely to be living in poverty. If you're a child, you're much more likely to be living in child poverty. You're more likely to be incarcerated. You're more likely to die in police custody. You're still going to be discriminated against if people think you have a Black-sounding name, which follow very, very similar patterns to the US. It doesn't mean that um, the reason those disparities exist are exactly the same, but there are a lot of similarities, and that's why throughout history we have had a lot of kind of solidarity between racial justice movements in the US and the UK. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, even in a more like lighthearted sense, we think about black Twitter, that's like a very diasporic thing. You've got, you know, <laughs> rivalries between countries as well and continents, but you do see a lot of um, kind of online culture where people are borrowing and sharing from one another. And so I, I think there is enough of that sharing and similarity to be able to take a phrase that is originated in the US and apply it to a UK context and and in some, you know, kind of challenge its meaning and change it whilst acknowledging that we are living in very different countries with very different histories and not everything will translate. Um, And it speaks to that nuance thing again, isn't it? That, you know, you can't just copy and paste everything. And I think sometimes that does happen and it doesn't quite fit. And it's just being aware of, OK, what can be shared, what works. And then when it doesn't quite translate, just being nuanced enough to acknowledge that. It's because
0: it's we're all cousins. I mean, ultimately, that's what it is, right? It's a, it's a conversation between cousins. And it's funny you say that. I was thinking I had a conversation with um, a guest talking about um, UK hip hop. And I was referring to the fact that I remember when it first came out, people were mimicking the Americans and it sounded awful. Yes. But now you you remember... But now I it was you know, like we we got into it, we got into it. And then we were like, yeah. eh, but still, I don't know. But now we have our own sound. You know, ultimately when you think about grime mm. MCs, that you know, like that's that that comes from that tradition. I mean, longer traditions, but it also comes from that too. Mm. We have UK hip hop that we can say, All right, that sounds like us and you're talking about our thing. So yeah, that absolutely makes sense to me. Now, in, I want to get into the the inspiration of it all. So, we we have in as in as much as we've talked about um, our understood experiences of this, right? But how did the book come to be? What made you get up? Because you know, as you see, like I, I absolutely relate to to the premise of it. But you got up one day and you said, "This is a book I'm going to write."
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I it didn't happen overnight. Hmm. And I think with a lot of these things, I've started to do some panels and promo with other writers. And when you see an end product of something, it often seems as if, you know, things have happened very quickly or it's happened overnight. But normally there's been years and years of having vague ideas, planning, putting together a proposal before you're ready to try and get an agent or, you know, send it out to publishers And that was definitely true for me. I started off um, writing for online magazines. So I basically owe most of my career to Galdem, which is an online magazine that platforms the voices of um, women and non-binary people of colour. Yeah, love it. And it was, love Galdem. But, you know, I was in my early 20s. I didn't have any experience other than at the student newspaper, And they gave me a chance and gave me the space to write. And that led to other opportunities for more mainstream publications like The Guardian and The Independent, which is, a these are UK newspapers, Mm -hmm. and some BBC news stuff and BBC radio. And it grew out of that because one of the things when you're putting together nonfiction is that you do have to prove audience. So, you know, prove that people know your name and that, you would be able to write something longer form and that quote unquote reputable outlets have published your work. And I definitely wouldn't have been able to do something book length if it hadn't been for those opportunities. But it was through doing that work that I started to think about doing essays with the arc of challenging some of those narratives that I've really benefited from. But also I can find don't always represent who I am. You know, particularly when I'm in my early 30s now, but started writing in my twenties. And a lot of that was an extremely messy time in my life. I wasn't always making amazing decisions. Right. I wasn't always dating the right person. And yeah, often didn't feel particularly excellent at all. And I wanted to do something that was based on that theme, but also tackled quite serious issues because we're facing lots of very, yeah, kind of diet, racial justice issues, economic issues, definitely in the UK ah. and particularly now. Ah. And I'm also, you know, did a lot of personal essays and the personal essay boom of the 20, kind of mid 2010s. And what I'm interested in is how you can combine that kind of more memoir-style personal story with research, which is the other job that I've done throughout the past 10 years, which is um, policy research on, um, you know, how certain political decisions made by our government impact different groups, um, mostly racial minorities. So how can you combine that research, which can be quite hard-hitting. And wonky, yeah. Yeah, and quite wonky. You know, how do you communicate that with people in a more engaging way because ultimately we need to get that information out there and it can be quite empowering understanding why our society looks the way it is, or at least it is for me. And so that kind of drove me to do the book was to try and how can I get that information out to a wider audience?
0: Is uh, your, your book. um, So what I'm hearing from you is that you were growing up at a, a messy time and I'm going to stay there for a little bit because I think it's really important for us to have that conversation about what it means to be messy and how that feels to be messy right um is you you do you incorporate some of that in your book do you so you get personal with it right is what oh, yeah
1: mm. yeah it's my personal life is is up in there and
0: Ooh.
1: yeah it's and it's it's quite a weird it's quite it's very strange having, you know, I. So let me, let me ask you this question. I, I, I,
0: and I know why you're, you're you're stammering and it's, it's, I think it speaks to where I'm going to go with this. Right. Again, going to black girl magic because you're not allowed to be vulnerable and you have to be Mm. perfect at all times. Yeah. I think the decision for you to be so personal in this book while also again doing this high level stuff. That's the stuff that's really interesting to me. Why what was your it may not have been a decision, but why did you choose to share so much about your personal
1: life in this book? What was your goal? So the goal is to make what can be quite dry, wonky information much more interesting and accessible but also to show the impact of some of those this policy decisions, which mm. can feel quite abstract. Mm-hmm. If I take a story from my personal life, which can be a challenge because you're opening yourself up for critique in quite a personal way. Jura. If someone critiques Ooh. your novel, it's your novel. But, you know, if someone starts critiquing certain aspects of my book, they are just criticising me. And so that's quite scary. And, you know, in the name of professionalism, the kind of image you project out, you know, right. I will be crumbling some of that and that is quite a scary thing but i also think it's much more powerful to hear about how a certain say belief about black people impacts people on a day-to-day level and in a personal way and then being able to link that to some of the more researchy um statistical stuff right i just think that's a much more powerful way of communicating and so for me if i want to get things out to a wider audience in an accessible way, then I feel like it's a risk that I have to take. Um, I think it also just makes things read better in a more interesting way than something that can be quite dry. Mm. So we need to put put ourselves out there. And also with the title, you know, if I'm saying we need to be vulnerable, then it's kind of my responsibility to be vulnerable vulnerable myself. So it's it's almost in some ways by saying Black Girl
0: No Magic, it's kind of um, you're putting your money where your mouth is. And you're telling people, yeah. <laughs> you're telling people, this is this is how not just how society impacted me, but I was messy too. I'm, you know, and I still am messy because I'm human. I'm accomplished and I'm messy. Do you still love me, or do you, at mm. least, or, or do you at the very least understand, <laughs> understand why I am who I am? Is would that be a correct uh, uh, summarization? it would be a correct
1: uh, summarization. That is it definitely really,
0: is. that's really, really brave of you. i got to say as a journalist, as a former journalist, I got to say the idea of putting my stuff out there, petrifies me, but I also recognize that it's really important to do that, especially when you're trying to, you know, reframe narratives because, because that's mm-hmm. really what your book is doing, right? Reframe narratives about who black girls are and, how we operate you know we're not like we don't have nerves of steel all the time i would argue that a lot of black girls are probably quite timid in some ways because like in the core right would you
1: agree i would agree and i just think there isn't necessarily as much space for that as there should be Mm. someone did do an essay collection a few years ago um well it's called loud black girls which is the opposite of what we're discussing right now but someone had an essay in there that was talking about the fact that they were quiet And I think that's much more common um, than is given space for. And it doesn't, again, fit with these narratives of being really powerful um, and magic and excellent. I'm, I'm quite an outgoing person, but I do really like time by myself and to be introverted and to just sit alone reading a book. I actually find some forms of public speaking and being out there quite exhausting Mm. and, I don't necessarily think that that's celebrated in the way that it should be. We're all different and we all work in a different way and um, enjoy different ways of living. And what I'm hoping to do is at least carve out a little bit more space for people to be able to be whichever version of themselves that feels true to them.
0: You're listening to The Cypher Podcast with me, Christabel Nsiyabwadi. I'm speaking today with Kimberly McIntosh, the author of Black Girl, No Magic, which is a walk through the realities and the experiences of being a black girl or woman in the United Kingdom. Don't go anywhere. Mm, We'll get back to this theme of freedom, which always always comes up with all of my guests. It's just just allow me to just be what's your version of black girl magic? Cause you've written a book apart from the book, which is coming out overachiever black girl magic. And I mean that very, very <laughs> lovingly. That's great. Um, um, you, you know, you, I know that you, I'm just going to share this for you. You know, you went to a private school, um, at, which says to me that your family also overachieved, um, in order to, to make that happen for you. And also you made that happen for yourself. Um, so in terms of academics what was that version of black girl magic number 1 and I'd be interested to know in how um how that um did that exhaust you and and when did you feel that exhaustion when it when it happened
1: Yeah I I mean I'm tired now right <laughs> I'm definitely I'm due another another career break or something soon oh. but <laughs> It's it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> but I, so I got a scholarship to a private school when I was seven. And what? Okay. Yeah, I was. I was very young. I was very young, and it, it's given me a lot of unfair opportunities in life, which is definitely a key theme in the book. I can, you know, the older I get, and the more research I did, the clearer it became that a lot of the things that I've achieved in my life are not my own doing, this isn't to say that, you know, I'm not academic. I am academic. Mm. I did do well in school. I did well at university, but that was greatly enabled by decisions that were outside of my control. Mm. And what I don't want to become an example of is me, my existence being used to
0: um, bash other people. Yeah. Mm.
1: You know, if I can do it, other people can do it. Well, actually you know, I went to a youth club, um, kind of an African Caribbean youth club, and they had a Saturday school or a supplementary school, sometimes it's called. And I went to one of those. <laughs> did, did you go to one of those on Saturday? Yeah. I did. Yeah. Oh, I hated it. But also I'm thankful <laughs> that I did. Yeah. We'll talk yeah, about those definitely... another time. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. But I went to one of those and there was a school in the countryside. In Berkshire, which is the county in which I live, the most like British name countryside, I, people, county ever. Yeah, yes. Very green, very shirey. Yes. Um, but they were looking for to diversify their school because there were, you know, it was basically all white people, uh-huh. and they were looking for academic kids in a certain age range, and I was in that age range, and I you know passed the tests and the interviews and so off I went and yeah I mean definitely a formative experience because obviously it was a majority white environment and my family you know I live with my mum in social housing so um I don't know what the equivalent would be in the US Um, uh, the projects
0: you, you live yeah in project. so council house yes. projects, yeah
1: and you know the juxtaposition of that which is you know, the life I'd lived until then and then suddenly being at school with all these very wealthy white people has obviously formed a lot of my ideas about class and about race and about justice. But it it did instill in me, you you know, you need to do very well. And you also don't have the luxury to not do well like these other kids do. And I kind of lived that for a very for a very long time. And then at some point in my mid-20s, it Ashtonbury. you know, starts to take its toll a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people need to rest and learn to have boundaries and to say no to things. And you'll be much happier for it. Um highly also recommend therapy. Um, <laughs> big yeah. advocate for Great. therapy. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I, I asked that question because um, you know, really what what you're when when I think about um black excellence and black girl magic. I also think about this idea. It actually terrifies me because I just visualise just constantly running. You're constantly running to keep up with everybody else rather than looking internally and saying, I am enough as well. So um, do you, was your book written to, with the hope to maybe address that too, because it's one thing to speak to audiences who aren't black women or black girls to say, this is what we look like. What's the message that you're hoping to give to black girls, black women? I'm going to call all of us it's, black girls because we
1: were and we are. Yeah, we were and we are. And my message would be that it's it's okay to rest and it's okay to stop. I know that I've been driven a lot by um, external validation. So, you know, being seen as a success and meeting certain milestones that are generally accepted by people to signify success. So, Going to university, although I really wanted to do that, I I am quite academic, I love learning. But one of the decisions I made when I was 17 was, you know, they normally push people to apply to Oxford and Cambridge. And I dropped out of the group at school and I didn't apply because I knew I didn't want to go there and it wouldn't make me happy. But the only reason I did that is because I got really ill and was in hospital. And honestly, I don't think I think if that hadn't happened, I would have ended up applying because it's just what you should do. It's right. what you should aspire to. to
0: do because you're you're going for that gold, that gold middle.
1: Mm. But, you know, do, do these things make you happy? Is it actually what you want? And I think it can be hard to push back because it's a luxury to make the decisions that make you happy rather than the ones that are expected of you. Mm. And I think I forgot that lesson actually for a while and then have come back around to it again.
0: Oh, I'm glad yeah. you did. I'm glad yeah. you did. You, you said two things that struck me. You referred to unfair advantage. And when you were talking um, for people who were just if, just listening, I kind of pulled a face because I was like, is it un- mm. is it unfair? But I think I kind of, uh, explain what you mm. mean when you say unfair. And I asked that question with mm. no judgment because I think I understand what you mean.
1: No, definitely. So when I say unfair, I mean, it's an unfair advantage that I have, say, over another black person on a low income who didn't get that opportunity. Right. Because I was in the right place at the right time. It doesn't mean I don't feel that I didn't deserve it. I I feel I deserve it in the way that I feel that everyone deserves opportunity. So it's not a downer on myself to think that, oh, I shouldn't have had that opportunity I, I definitely think I deserve good things to happen to me, but I think other people deserve them too. And what I see as unfair is that that's often a lottery and that lots of other people who have a lot to offer don't get the same opportunities. And once you get the first one, they often snowball. And so mm. they cumulatively add up to bigger and bigger things and it cumulatively gets harder for other people. Um, and so I think I'm glad you asked the question because I think it's important to make the distinction. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's unfair that good things have happened to me. Yeah, um, I was going to say, because I was like, yeah. and also
0: I was like, no, you you also earned those things. But I'm glad that yeah. you asked that. I did ask that question as well, because yeah. I think that unfair advantage to kind of paraphrase you is a thing that all of our parents want for us as well, because they know yeah. the society is hard. Right. So my parents were like, if you go to a big university, because if you go to the big university, then more things will happen. And I remember growing up not really understanding that. And being quite resentful of that because I was like, I'm just I'm doing my best. I'm tired. I'm tired. But they wanted that snowball effect so Mm -hmm. that I would have I would be at a point at a level where I had enough power to not be impacted by the nonsense, a.k.a. the racism of the world. But what we realize is that it doesn't matter how high you go. (laughs) Ask President Obama. Doesn't matter how far, (laughs) how far up you go. Um, it's always going to be there. It doesn't protect you from that. I spent spent a long time being like, well, if I get to a particular point and I'm powerful, then I'm going to be safe and I'm going to be happy. One thing I want to raise as well is Saturday school. We've talked a lot about Black Girl Magic Saturday schools and we laughed about that at the start, but that's Black excellence right there. I really want people to know about these Saturday schools. I've laughed with friends who've also been there because we all didn't like it. We weren't trying to Go to school on a Saturday. We wanted to play. But tell our audience about these African Caribbean um, uh, supplemental schools or Saturday schools. And then I'll jump in
1: and say, yeah, I hated it too. But thank you very much. <laughs> so, supplementary schools or Saturday schools were started by the African Caribbean community after migration from the Caribbean to the UK in the 1960s onwards and what they were trying to push back against was the systemic racism happening in schools so um, a lot of black kids are being um, branded this term and it's the term that was being used at the time not my phrasing um educationally subnormal <laughs> and there was no evidence to suggest that that was true and so the community took it into their own hands to try and bring education into the community and to make sure that our children weren't falling behind. And this would happen on Saturday mornings. And so for the children, obviously, you've got school all week and then you've got to go on a Saturday morning when everyone else is getting to watch cartoons or go to the park. You've got to do more maths and English. And so, you know, it was not the most popular things with kids, but... They're really, really important because they also, not only did they help you to either um, at least stay at a good level or to get ahead, but they also did a lot of cultural education as well. Um, So learning about um, black history or the history of um, where your parents or grandparents migrated from, to also have that cultural reinforcement to push back against the racism that they knew would come as we got older, if it hadn't already arrived. So they're a really, really important space. And we, as when I say we, so my family, we still try and support the local Saturday school where I went. So whether it's booking the hall, because they um, Mm -hmm. own a building, when we have events to try and keep revenue circulating Mm -hmm. within the community or um, doing voluntary work every now and then, or using that after-school club um, if we have children, we try and support it still because it's it's a really important resource and there aren't as many of them as there used to be. So we really need to try and keep them going. And I
0: think that uh, the reason why I asked you to t- talk about that, because I think it, I wrote an article a while back um, talking about um, Black Britain's Unsung Heroes, and I had that memory of going to Saturday school in Acton. Shout out Acton, West London. And, um, uh, you know, after going to the market, yeah, Shepherd's Bush Market and then had to go to Saturday school, couldn't stand it. And the place was cold. And you say that you'll try, you, try, you try to support the place by booking halls there. I see that as progress because back in the day they were booking the halls that were mm. along to other people, right? And the heating wasn't yeah. on. I remember being cold and being like, how am I supposed to actually use my brain? If I'm cold, also I was just being extra because I didn't want to be there, right? But yeah, <laughs> um, but I think that you know these are the things like when we, you know, so so little is 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 talked about about the Black British experience, um, and those of us who kind of grew up in it in the the eighties and the nineties and the aughts, um, it we the, we they come back in in flashbacks, and so in some ways. Well, in many ways, I think you writing this book and kind of doing that is a wonderful thing because you're putting down your understanding of what our collective Black history is. And there's a lot of nuance in that, right, depending on where you're from. But I think that's one step
1: in in us doing that. Do you talk about Saturday School in the book? Um, I do a little bit, actually. And that's also where I met my best friend. And we're still friends now. And we actually live quite near each other. Um, in South London which is really lovely too but we met at that Saturday school and so it's not just education it's also friendship as well Mm -hmm. and particularly you know forging identity in a majority white environment you know my mum was very intentional about sending me there for more than one reason so it Mm -hmm. wasn't just to get um make sure that I was good at maths and English it was also saying
0: that with how you reinforced exactly exactly um, the fact that you're writing the book is having this conversation with you just underscores to me how important it is for us to get our stories down and i want to thank you for doing that in the way that you're doing it using public policy which is clearly one of your loves <laughs> um and by sharing um your experience um i for one will be taking notes and um maybe taking inspiration from that um so that we can continue to share our stories so that we can kind of reclaim those narratives that are told about our communities in the UK um, back because it was a lot of fun and there was a lot of power in it. Um, and just as these Saturday schools have illustrated. Um, yeah, just a lot of excellence. So, Kimberly McIntosh, I want to thank you for joining me on the cypher today. It was a lovely, lovely conversation. I want you to enjoy the rest of your vacation. Excuse me, holiday. (laughs) Yeah, holiday, please. (laughs) Yeah, I'm bilingual now. I want you to enjoy the rest of your holiday, but thank you so much for joining me today on The Cypher.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Kimberly McIntosh, the author of Black Girl, No Magic. She's a public policy researcher and a London borough councillor. You can listen to The Cypher wherever you get your favourite podcasts and follow Kimberly McIntosh on Instagram. And you can get all of those details on our website. We're at thecypherpod.com.